Hello and welcome to the All Ears podcast by Give Her Up with me, Jeremy Inson. Give Her Up is a non-profit organisation that was developed to help rugby union players, club members, volunteers and coaches feel more comfortable talking openly and honestly about their mental health and well-being. In this series we're talking to women and men from across rugby union to find out how their involvement in the sport has affected their mental health in good and bad ways and to share their stories and the lessons they've learned thanks to being involved in Rugby Union. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is a very busy woman. You can watch her news reports on TV, listen to her radio commentaries and podcasts, and read her reports online. It's a warm welcome then to BBC commentator and rugby reporter, Sarah Orchard. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to the All Ears podcast. Great to have you with us. Um, as we ask all our guests, how's your mental health today these, uh, at the moment? Hello, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be on here. Um, how's my mental health at the moment? It's okay. Um, I, I've got a lot of coping strategies. Um, I think we all have ups and downs with our mental health, don't we? Um, and there are certain things that I know I do at the moment to always keep me in check. Uh, the big one for me is exercise. I know that that keeps me a sane woman. And if I don't do it, uh, my hu husband will often encourage me out the door to go on a run um, because he knows it will help. He's very good with that. Um, we all know what helps. But yeah, the big one for me, yeah, if I'm out, and this time of year is brilliant for it, isn't it? When the weather's just starting to change, it's turning from spring to summer, you want to be outside. Um, and the other thing I do for my mental health, a little bit of gardening. That's always good for the soul as well. So my courgettes are just starting to appear. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to hearing about them in an upcoming <laughs> pod. I mean, the fact you're with very healthy people most of the time, how much does that help? And, uh, and also, what sort of triggers do you find if you do have those sort of mental, mental wobbles? Um, being around healthy people all the time, I don't think in any way helps you encourage you to be a healthier person. I think that's a bit of a myth because as much as I work with sports people, it doesn't mean that I'm doing any sport <laughs> with them or doing anything that they do. So um, I think generally a sort of a, a journalistic reporting broadcasting community, um, you know, we all come in different shapes and sizes completely. There's no sort of norm there at all. And uh, what you do um, to look after yourself uh, in your body and your health is very individual. I don't think there's anything in our role that sort of inspires you to do it. People, anyone can watch sport. You don't have to be like a, a fitness freak to do it or a health freak. Um, but yeah, when it comes to sort of like managing it day to day, you know, I always make sure I go out for a run or a walk. Uh, twice a week is my minimum, good weeks four times. Um, and I've just got my son riding his bike now, which is brilliant because it means he can ride and I can run along next to him, which is just brilliant. So it's like the old school boxer type, uh, pacing <laughs> you along like they used to do, or the, or the rowing coach cycling up and down the, yeah. the riverside. Oh, brilliant stuff. Yeah. And on the, uh, yeah, on the strategies, where if you do have those, exercise is clearly the big one. Are there any sort of triggers that you notice as you come into that stage with yourself? Is it, is it, does it coincide with tiredness? Like like a lot of us, especially those with the young children. Yeah, definitely tiredness is a big one. Um, the biggest thing I would say is it often manifests itself in different ways. Um, the big one is anxiety. Um, I'm, as a general, I'm not a very anxious person at all. 
Uh, I'm not, and I'm very lucky that I'm not, because I know a lot of people are. It's not something I've really had huge struggles with in my life. Um, but what I tend to find, um, and again, uh, my husband and I, we, we recognize, and it's individual to the person, is um, I can get quite fixated on one thing that is often not at all important or significant to my day-to-day -day life, and I can make it to be far bigger than it needs to be. And all it takes sometimes is for me to articulate it out loud and then just to sort of like, then talk it down from sort of this high mountain that it's reached and put it back down on the floor where it belongs. And then it becomes very manageable all over again. Um, but yeah, that's sort of how it manifests itself, a little bit of um, an anxiety that comes a big knot, and it doesn't need to be at all in any way, shape or form. How much does, uh, does your job come into that sort of especially the fact that you know if you're rugby commentaries you've got to learn was it 46 names just in the uh, of the two playing squads perhaps the odd uh, a few players who are who aren't playing then you've got management and referees on top yeah. <laughs> you're, you're class of 100 yeah. really yeah it, it's one of those things um i i don't get that anxious around work anymore one of the the wonderful things about doing a job for a long time as I have you get into a routine and a rhythm and you know what that routine and rhythm is and not only that I think it gets easier as a commentator and a porter reporter as you get uh, older because you tend to be given more of the same teams on a regular basis um, what will be tough for me this year is when the men's world cup rolls around again in 2023 um, in September and October and they'll go oh Sarah can you do chili and you'll be like yep um, yes yes I can um, can I name you one Chilean rugby player right now if I'm honest no I cannot uh, but come you know that match at the Rugby World Cup I'll know everything I physically can about that side um, but that sort of thing doesn't intimidate me in any way anymore you, you know how you go about it you know how you do the job and I also know when I turn up to commentate on those kind of teams there is you know an absolute army of other people who are doing exactly the same thing and want to do the best thing uh, for that side and that's to know everything about them so I, I know it's coming and it's all okay it's all in the preparation yeah definitely and, and for anyone who sort of starts out I was speaking I won't say who they were I was speaking to a player the other day who hasn't done a lot of media and they said, oh, I'm really nervous. And I said, if it helps, you know, I get nervous sometimes, but nerves don't scare me. Um, nerves show that you care. Um, and, you know, when I'm really nervous, I still get the shakes a little bit. The adrenaline starts going. And so there's little things like I'm holding a microphone in front of you now, so people can't see this. But if it starts going like that, if you go like that with two hands, it doesn't shake. But if you're holding it in one, it shakes. So you learn sort of little things just to get around it um, and just sort of control it or put your hands behind your back. That's a good one as well. <laughs> Good Unless tips, you're holding then. a microphone, and that would work. Yeah, that's true. I'll, get those, I'll note those two down. That's good. Uh, good tips. Shall we go to your mastermind subject then, which is women's rugby, heavily involved with it at the moment, being the six, women's Six Nations. Um, probably the two sides of it. We can st pick which one to start with first. What drives you crazy with it, and which one puts a smile on your face? Which of those would you um, like to start with? Do you want to start with the good or the bad? I'll start with the good because uh, I'm in a few women's rugby WhatsApp groups and somebody told me today they were driving around the M25 and you know they put those big uh, signs up on the advertising hoardings if there's a big event on whether it be at Wembley or one of the big places and there's a big event coming up at the end of the month at Twickenham and there are flashing signs on the M25 warning people that there is a big event on at Twickenham on the last day of the Women's Six Nations and that is England against France and I have never attended a women's event before where you've had traffic warnings in advance that so many people are attending so that puts a massive smile on my face how cool is that 
Um, so that's brilliant. And then what doesn't make me so happy about women's rugby at the moment is, that, oh, there's loads. There's loads. Um, and by the way, the only happy thing isn't just uh, those signs. There are other things. But, no, that's all right. We don't expect you to be driving around the M25 <laughs> for the next couple of weeks until the match starts. Finding joy. Um, uh, things, yeah, just generally other unions catching up, um, putting their money where their mouth is. Um, and th- there's a frustration around the speed, I would argue, that other nations are catching up because sometimes, you know, they are investing in their women's sides. It is going on right now. And there is a big talk at the moment around the women's six nations about, again, the dominance of England and France, and rightly so. But that's not to say the other nations aren't investing. They're just a long way behind, and it's going to take years to catch up. It's just how many years that is that concerns me more than anything. And, and I always say when it comes to England and France, the best things they've got is their leagues. It's, it's not the contracts. It, it's the substance behind those contracts that makes the big difference. And I think that is where you're seeing the big differences between the unions that are doing well and those that aren't. And that's just the quality of their domestic leagues. Because it's interesting you're saying about unions putting the money in because eventually it's a bit like... A, you know, some of the sort of the social social movements out there that have gone before us, um, off the top of my head, gay rights, you know, all the, the, the fight and the people's struggles had for those or, or racial equality laws, eventually people get around to doing it. And almost when they do come in, you, you go, well, why didn't yeah. you do this 30 years ago? You know, if, yeah. and, and you kind of, and, and it's, the unions, you get the thing that unions do have the money in the hole. It's just, it's, it's the political will behind it. Yeah, and, and the, the the most frustrating thing, actually, for me, uh, is I want to talk about rugby. I don't want to talk about the issues. That's the biggest thing in sport. What you actually want to talk about is how brilliant a side is or how much they've come on or the individual skill of one player um, or be able to break down tactically a side a bit more. And it's something I, I actually say quite frequently to the England players when I speak to them when they... They might ask you just in passing at a press conference, oh, what did you think? Or, And I frequently say to them, it's very hard to evaluate you as a side because you, you don't have an opposition really to play against that we as, as, as commentators get to see. Um, England, I've watched them play three times in the Six Nations and they're beating you know teams by 50 points plus each time. It's very hard to break down a team other than to say they're very good because... You, you don't know what they're like when they're actually tested. So, um, yeah, that that is a big frustration in, in women's rugby in particular at the moment is that we can't break down and talk about, you know, the stuff we want to talk about, which is, uh, yeah, rugby. Yeah, and the fact that they're great, they're fantastic players, they're elite athletes who who you want, as you say, you want them to see being tested. And I think, you know, I can imagine from your side of view as, as a journalist, you you almost come out with the same platitudes after a while, trying yeah. to trying to feather you know um, how would you say you know sort of feather it a bit so it doesn't come out as hard on the team that, that's that's taken the hiding but also not seem like you're just overseeing the the team that has won and it, it almost becomes a bit you know <laughs> what they're doing it for almost it's uh, you know just yeah 
but but then on the flip side of it, I mean, as I said, um, you know, things are changing. I mean, we just saw a result this weekend for Wales where there were huge expectations in Wales that they were going to go and do something against England this weekend and last weekend. And I was very honest in every platform I spoke on. I said, I have no expectation of Wales winning it. I have no expectation of them getting close to England. But having watched them in recent years get beaten by 50, 70 points by England, I expected that gap to close down to about 30. The fact it was 50 points again, I can openly say that's not good enough from a Welsh perspective. Um, And they'll be as disappointed as anyone. And they were in that game for half an hour. Um, And the worst frustration in that game actually was actually in the second half when England went down to 13 players and Wales they did have 14 for about a minute but were back up to 15 for sort of nine minutes and didn't do anything in that period that sort of down to 13 almost seemed to galvanize England and make them even stronger that should have been Wales big flag there should have been huge messages coming on in that moment to say this is our time get down the other end this is when we're scoring and it just didn't happen that is hugely disappointing from uh, an outfit that now has uh, you know 25 professional contracts behind it uh, one of those things as you say let's take for instance the wales england result from the weekend just past from years gone by there was very it, it seemed that a lot of the the reporting across the various platforms being in print or in broadcast was uh, it was almost like hooray the women are playing sport doesn't really matter even though this is an international that actually not playing well and you got the feeling from watching women's rugby matches and, and other sports there was almost a, a reticence to criticize people in the way that they would have done with the men's sport um, I remember I think it was 2019 Women's Football World Cup uh, the line is that she didn't play particularly well in the semi-final when they lost to the USA but it was it was almost a reluctance to criticize them now you probably not want people to criticize them to the extent they often do in the men's sport but just to bring that up, just that realism of like, these are elite athletes. They're not just people running around in the park for the local club. The, you know, if the, if the criticism's constructive or well and good, you don't want it to be over the top, getting personal or, or just criticism for criticism's sake. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think the big thing about Wales in particular this last weekend is whether they like it or not. They've had two years now where two years ago their union was really raked through the mud for how it was treating its women's players. And they responded. They apologised and they've continued to apologise for that period. Uh, they've been good on their promises. They introduced 12 contracts the first year. That went up to the World Cup and now they're on 25 contracts. They've improved the programme. They've brought in more coaches. Um, a lot of things those women have asked for have been delivered. Therefore, there comes a point where it's OK. We've delivered now you've got to deliver on your side of the bargain. So that is that is a situation that Wales is going to have to start coping with, particularly over this next year, building towards that World Cup in 2025, um, that everything they've asked for is on the table um, and performances have to improve. Now, as I said, I'm not expecting them to beat England and France. That is not the expectation at all. But the gap should be closing. Um, there's an argument that the pathway needs to improve as well for Wales, which, again, the Welsh Rugby Union are doing. They're introducing more age group rugby, which is vitally important. They introduced the Celtic Challenge for women's rugby uh, in the last year. That's the competition uh, for women below test level between uh, Wales, Ireland and Scotland. That was hugely well received um, and is, you know, a real training ground. It's kind of like um, when uh, back in the day when the men's sides, they all had an A-League. Um, uh, for at international level so that's what women's rugby really need and they delivered that um, 
but again, as I said, it, it's now particularly for Wales, Scotland are going to maybe going to get this a little bit more next year when they're every year into their professional journey. Um, Ireland as well. At the moment, Wales, the pressure is on that they have to start delivering on the pitch. And, and I would say they're going to have huge pressure on them, and particularly in their final match against Italy. Um, they're travelling away and their ex- the expectation will be they need to win that. It's not they should win it, they need to win that uh, because the added complication for the women's Six Nations now is you actually have something called WXV, which a lot of people have never heard of or understand anything about, and that's absolutely fine because it's not easy to understand. But this is like a new global calendar competition for all of the top sides in the world, and where you finish in the Six Nations table is going to determine which level of this competition you enter, uh, which is going to be held for the first time later next year. So for the likes of Wales and Italy, it's going to be huge. Now, chatting to the players, obviously you know the players very well. Chatting to them, um, from their side of view on the mental health, how the, all these issues, how do they weigh on them? I mean, we met, I accosted you at the Six Nations launch. The talk was of professionalism. Obviously, they were very happy with that. And there, were, there was talk about the Irish shorts, wearing the Navy shorts um, to relieve the pressure of period anxiety. There was talk about England's new maternity policies. Um, how much... Is this sort of chat, this uh, the treatment that the way it's been developed? How does that affect them psychologically and, and on their mental health? From what you've what you've gathered, um, I think I think each individual uh, country has a different culture, and I think that's what we're coming down to here: is what is your team culture like, um, and what is the communication like ultimately between the players, the coaching staff, and the union. Um, all these things come back to how well you will communicate with each other and not only if you communicate, if you're listened to. Um, so there have been questions uh, off the back of that statement by the IRFU about how much the players were consulted about the shorts, um, of which you know the RFU have said, yes, we did consult the players. We consulted with them in Japan, um, which is a long time ago uh, compared to when the announcement actually came out. Um, and it, it's one of those ones, I think, you know, the players... I, I don't know how they honestly feel about it because you will find this a lot in sport that when someone is a professional and is being paid, um, even if they're not fully professional, like all the Ireland players, like some of them, they're being paid to play because they're living in the UK to play in the Premier 15s and they haven't actually moved to Ireland to take a contract. They're still getting a fee by the IRFU to train and play with them. You're not going to get the full story because, you know, it's... Why would you openly and actively go against your employer when you're personally unsure of your situation? And for the Ireland players in particular, that individual situation is huge because there is a player called Cleaner Maloney who came out and actively um, uh, criticised the IRFU. She was. Um, It was when... Uh, she came out with a, a Twitter statement that said uh, along the lines of, I didn't realize it was slurry season in response to um, an IRFU um, directive about their improvements to women's rugby. And she has never been selected since for the Ireland rugby team. Now, we have repeatedly questioned this of the IRFU and they have always said it is down to form. While there's a lot of people who watch her play in the Premier 15s, even I have to say, I don't think she'd necessarily be first choice for Ireland. Um, they've got some very good players in that hooking position. But th- there's a lot to say that she shouldn't be in the mix there. Um, so you would understand that. And you'd argue that maybe that's not a great culture to be in, that that isn't good for your mental health. If you have that hanging over you, if, if you think your union is that powerful, that um, you come out and perhaps arguably Cleaner could have done it in a better way. 
you know there's a two-way street there um but you know you have to respect someone for actually standing up for themselves and when she actually did that you know the women's rugby program was in a really bad place and you'd say it's in a better place now but yeah there are problems around it and and when it comes to the england women i know they were heavily involved with that maternity policy um, and it took years to get to that point. Vicky Cornborough, who spearheaded it, she um, is the first woman to sit on the Rugby Player Association board. She led it. Um, Abby Ward, who is now pregnant herself, was heavily involved in it. So many of the players. And not only that, they, they brought out the policy. And as much as it's down on a piece of paper, they've said, look, if this needs changing, we'll change it. Um, and Abby Ward has said, yeah, that's fine. You know, keep talking to me. I'll tell you if something needs to be changed. But the other thing is it's very individual. It could change for one person and then be different for someone else. So... Yeah, it, it's all about conversations and culture. And I think they're all in different places right there where they and how they interact with their unions. Now, of course, rugby is not the only sport you cover. Hockey and tennis are two of the big ones you've covered in the past. How do their sort of their provision uh, and their treatment and for female athletes compare to, to rugby? Obviously, tennis is a bit different because it's an individual sport. Hockey, though, there are those parallels. Slightly more established sport among, uh, for, for women... Um, within yeah. the UK uh, well I, I dealt a lot with Team GB uh, in the build up to the Olympics occasionally I dealt with England hockey as well um, in the build up to big championships as well um, it's a very established programme that the hockey women have um, at Bisham Abbey um, and it's, it's, it's quite a machine to behold when you go and watch it and witness it um, the biggest thing I would say across uh, hockey and rugby in particular um, that I don't think at all is comparable with tennis is just how uh, there needs to continually be and there is uh, with both sports an understanding that this is not for life this is just for a short period and then you will have a career and you will have to do something else. Whether players listen to that is another thing altogether, but th that is a, a very uh, solid narrative. And I know in particular um, the uh, England hockey and the GB hockey, there was a big push a lot of the time um, to understand that you need something else other than this to work on. That's not to say everyone does it, but there was always a push there. And a lot of the women who came out of that, they did have careers lined up off the other side. Um, but yeah, tennis, you know, it's a different animal altogether. I mean, you know, yeah, don't don't quote me this because I'm not the tennis correspondent. But, you know, if you have a good run in a tennis tournament, it doesn't even have to be a slam. But if you go for a good run, you can earn in one prize po pocket what, you know, the rugby and the hockey players earn in a year. OK, so you just need one good run. But that's not going to pay ultimately if you travel across the whole world for the whole year. So I think something like tennis which is so individual you think about the peaks and the troughs the travel you know you think in in rugby and hockey you're spending a lot of time away from home tennis you're always away from home you know that's a big drain on your mental health yeah you you might have a bit of time during the grass court season or, or come back maybe for about three weeks over christmas but it's relentless the tour doesn't stop i think it's huge and for young players male or female they need really really good support to manage that because you're also living in a bubble and it's not a bubble you can escape you can't go okay yeah well i'll just do tennis you know uh monday to wednesday but then you know i'll switch off thursday and i'll, I'll go and work in a coffee shop or do something different that doesn't work you know you, you have no sense of reality you just have tennis so i have huge huge respect for those that can do that it's it's the pressure just a different version isn't it, really it's one of those ones across and you think if i don't know if you've ever read andre agassi's autobiography which 
Yes. Guys, the, the man was scared of scared of telling people he was bald for all those years. It sort of yeah. makes you question what that sport well, does look, for you. And on that, Rafael Nadal, there's been discussions for years about his hair and, and what he's doing with it. I'm sure it's a very similar narrative. Um, and just, just tennis in general. I mean, the biggest for me when it comes to women... I did a couple of US Opens um, when Serena Williams uh, was just sort of probably coming down from her pomp um, and she was sort of desperately seeking um, that elusive last Grand Slam. And I have to say, she a lot of people aren't a big fan of Serena Williams if they've had to work and deal with her. And I understand why, because she is a formidable woman, but then I have nothing but respect for that because she, you know, she tore up the rule book when it came to that. Um, it, after every tennis match, obviously there is a press conference and uh, there is, I don't think I'll ever be in press conferences again where someone walks in and just takes over from the press officer and points their finger around the room about which questions she will and won't answer and will walk out when she's done, not when anyone tells her. Um, I, I, as I said, it, it's scary, but I have a lot of time for it. Do you feel like <laughs> applauding it when she walked out at the end? and? Uh... A want more bit, yeah. I mean, there's that yeah, element of you want more huge. of them to be a little bit more like that and, and not cower before people with microphones. <laughs> like, it would be absolutely terrifying for the rest of us if everyone was like that. And I don't know how much content we get, but it, it was just proof of how powerful one individual can be. And it doesn't matter if you're male or female. As I said, a lot of people didn't like it. And I can understand why. But because for its difference, I, th- I thought, oh, this is brilliant. <laughs> This is the All Is Podcast by Give a Rock with me, Jeremy Inson, and I'm talking to BBC rugby reporter and commentator, Sarah Orchard. Rugby then. How did you get into rugby? When did you get into rugby? And, and sort of what, what spurred you on to, to getting into the sport? Um, I played a bit at school. Um, our netball team was rubbish because uh, I went to one of those um, six forms where I'd always played a lot of sport at high school and then I went to a, a private school sixth form where there was only I think about 10 girls in our year um and then another 10 girls in the upper sex so yeah netball we were rubbish at um when you compete against a college that's got like a thousand women to pick from so we joined up with the girls school down the road and we formed a rugby team and I just got a taste for it so when I went to university I signed up and yeah I just I just found my people ultimately which was lovely um I think when you go to university any sport can be a wonderful home for a lot of people who might feel that, oh, maybe I've chosen the wrong course, I'm not in the right halls of residence with the right people. Um, if you can find the right sport or, or extracurricular activity for you, it's, it's a wonderful home. And yeah, rugby took me with two arms and embraced me. Um, and I loved my time there. Was it something, was it Was it a family interest? Was it your mum, your dad, siblings who were no, interested nothing. in rugby? Was it, you went, found your own path? completely by fluke completely by fluke um that i found it at, at school and then it sort of carried on into university uh, my dad will tell you he once played for the london irish fourths um but, who didn't um, who didn't exactly and i don't think he even really remembers it either so um my uncle did play a bit but i never got to go and watch him actually he was a pretty pretty good player who did he play for um oh, he played in southwest london but again it wasn't like at, at, at national level at all it was still just in london leagues um, but I can remember distinctly him having rugby friends uh, when I was growing up and playing at the local rugby club. But again, I never watched him, so it wasn't like a big thing in my family. Um, but yeah, and, and from that, I, I went off travelling at the end of university with my best friend who I played rugby with. We went to the uh, 2003 Rugby World Cup in Australia. Um, and we managed to... Um, yeah, Were you there that, that night? Really was inspiration. We were there. 
Um, took us a long time to get the tickets, but we got them. And um, when I came back from that trip, I was like, well, I still want to be involved in rugby. Um, uh, but I, I, I'd had a bad back injury the last time I'd played. Um, and I'd broken my leg in my final um, uh, season. And I was a bit like, okay, so what am I going to do? So I thought, oh, I'll referee. Um, I didn't, it, I didn't really think about it. I was just like, yeah, that'll do. Cause I can't coach. I couldn't commit to a team because I was trying to get a job and I didn't want to let anyone down. So I trained as a referee, got into that, did that for about five or six years. And that sort of was my bridging gap between living in Devon, then moving up to London where I got a job. Cause I refereed in Devon, then I refereed again in London. And the only reason I stopped doing it was just because when you work in this industry and cover rugby union matches every weekend, you don't have any weekends left to go and referee them. Um, I used weekends to do the Wednesday precious. game. Yeah, they really are. And <laughs> you, you can do the Wednesday game for like sure. um, uh, universities and schools, which is great. But again, it, it, it just got harder. And when you've got a family, as you know, you know, everything just gets more complicated and you just have to let some things go. Um, but no, I loved it. It was great. And the fact that, you know, going back to your school days, it was sixth form when you, the fact you paired up with another school down the road, it, it sounded very much, it was you, the six form girls ran it themselves almost. Uh, was there any ever pushback? Was there any people cocking their eyebrow and questioning why you were doing it and uh, and wondering what was going on? Was it all you wanted to do it? You Not got on really. the It was more, it, it, I wouldn't say it was that kind of thing. It was more, it was a novelty. Um, I think um, uh, what you describe as back in the day as the rugby lads at the school, they found it quite fun uh, to come and watch us play because obviously they all thought they were brilliant. Um, and uh, they'd come and see if we could actually do anything um, and then be quietly impressed when we actually put a few good hits in. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I've, have I ever had any pushback? The biggest pushback I've sort of had, um, I've never had any horrors. That's the biggest thing to say. I know some people have had horrors and I haven't. Um, when I was refereeing, I had a few comments. Um, so let's have a look. I had a couple. One was uh, I was refereeing in Exeter somewhere and a dog ran onto the pitch. So you can see where this is going already. It's not a question and of sport, turned... is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, the dog ran on and I had to stop the game. And I said, uh, can whoever owns this dog get it off the pitch immediately? And then someone behind me quit. Oh, but we need you on the pitch, ref. Ooh. I was like, thank you very much. Yeah, exactly. Um, luckily, I didn't see who it was, but I was like, less of that. Back you go, 10. Um, and then... uh, so it was a player rather than a spectator in that. <laughs> it instant. was a player, yeah. Okay. Make it um, original, make it but original. It, but as I said, it, it, was, it was in reasonable good jest. It wasn't, they hated me. Yeah. But again, it's not saying it was right. But at the same time, you learn to determine when something is mean and when something is meant to be funny. And he still got sent back 10 metres. And I said, I still can't tell you which one it definitely was. So 10 metres solved the problem. And then the other one, which, you know, I luckily found funny. Some women might have been absolutely horrified at. I was refereeing near Tiverton. And when you referee, you have to run around and you have to have, obviously, your not, notebook. Not all refs at that level run yeah. around, though, okay. fairness. Well, you, we, right, okay. well, you have your, your little scorebook with yep. your cards in your pocket. And in it, you have to have a little pencil. Okay. And I was running around and someone scored and I went to get everything out to write it down. Um, and <laughs> I realized I'd lost my pencil. And I was like, oh. So I said to everyone on the pitch, I said, just, you know, I've lost my pencil. It's somewhere on the pitch. They were like, okay, we'll have a look. And I said, but I've got another one in my bag. I'll just go and get it. So I walked over because you always keep a little bag by the picture. You've got a spare of everything. Of 
course. So I went over to my little bag. Referee 101. And I went to get my... Exactly. And obviously there wasn't a huge crowd there watching. It was just two old boys sat in deck chairs. (laughs) And they were about 10 metres away from me. And I was there going around. And and they both said to each other, I don't think they realised I could hear them. And one said to the other, what on earth is she doing? And the other one went, I don't know, probably getting a tampon out or something. (laughs) (laughs) To which I just sort of listened and I was like, all I can do is laugh. That's all I can do and just go and carry on. And I was just like, well... There you go. But, you know, we're, we're, sadly, we're going back 20 years now. But I'd, are, probably yeah. something like that would still be said now. So there you go. Uh, and when did, when did journalism come in? Because you did study journalism. Was it Sheffield Uni- University? Yeah. Fun fun university, from what I've he- heard. Yeah, I loved it. Seen. Yeah, no, it was great uni. Brilliant course. If anyone wants to go and do journalism studies, had a wonderful um, uh, lecturer there called Jonathan Foster, who was hugely inspirational for, for all of us on that course. Um, he's wrote he wrote for a lot of major titles and the stories he could tell um, particularly he covered um, uh, the end of apartheid in South Africa and he used to sort of be there in these lecture theatres and you could hear a pin drop we just sort of like fed off everything he told us and um, yeah that just was like this is what I want to do and I didn't necessarily know I was going to end up in sport at that point but I always tried to get a bit of sport into my coverage whenever I could Um, but you spend a lot of time when you do a journalism course actually learning about the law and I spent a huge amount of time at magistrates and crown courts covering that which probably was a little bit indicative of me not ending up in news because it just wasn't really for me um I just decided some of it you know is quite heavy there's no two ways about it you sit through some big horrors of what has happened in people's lives and it's not the same as what you read in the newspapers because a lot of what you actually hear in court doesn't end up in the newspapers because they can't actually report it all um but yeah, that was that was a really good solid grounding for me in my career, um, and yeah, I just really enjoyed it. And when I actually ended up getting into uh, journalism, I did a huge amount of work experience. You know, working for hospital radio, um, newspapers, um, local radio stations. I did it all. Name it. Um, I've been. I wrote a travel article once uh, for about people visiting London uh, as a tourist, having never been to London as a tourist myself. You know, it's just like you know, you just do it. Yes, I'll do it. Um, until I ended up at BBC Radio Devon, where I sort of like started to get my uh, opportunities uh, and go on the pathway that I've ended up in. Uh, now, as I mentioned in the intro, you do a bit of TV, you do a bit of radio. That's these days. That's face. But you also write for the the BBC Sport website. That multi-platform nature of your work how how rewarding is it and how much does it sort of add to your enjoyment that you have that variety it adds to my workload (laughs) i'll say that much (laughs) um do you know what if you want to get into it these days you've got to be able to do it all there's no two ways about it i the, the days where um uh colleagues older than i would turn up plug in a microphone, do a commentary and go home and that's their week's work done, have long passed. Those days don't exist anymore. Um, you have to be able to do a bit of everything. And then of all of them, I have to say, I'm not a brilliant writer at all. Um, I'm very open and honest about that. My spelling's pretty terrible. My grammar's not great. Luckily, there are subs that cover me. Um, that doesn't mean I can't do it. And it also doesn't mean that I don't try and I don't try and get better at it. Um, but I'm far more comfortable in a broadcasting arena um, than I am in a written arena. Um, and yeah, the, the biggest thing that's coming more and more is, um, how we work social media into this as well. Um, and that's the bit 
I probably find most hard because I find a lot of social media involves putting you up front as the story or ultimately takes a huge amount of time. Um, and I'm just like, oh, it's just another thing to do. <laughs> um, and on the days itself when I'm working, and if like last Saturday when I did um, the Wales-England game, what I actually do so I can concentrate on the commentary on the day is I always try and do what's called, you can, is it, there's an app called Buffer where you can time your tweets to come out. So what I actually do the day before a game is I put a couple of tweets that I prepare in advance that are just like facts of the game and where you can watch it. I always write them in advance because I do not have time on the day to do that kind of stuff. So you might find out when I leave an event, I might post a few pictures or something like that about the day itself. But when I wake up in the morning to when I start and finish that commentary, I don't have time for any of that. There's just, it's too much going on for me to worry about, you know, doing a vlog or, a, you know, what I've had for lunch before I do the commentary and all of that. It, it's too much. <laughs> uh, you mentioned earlier a little bit of the anxiety. Does that tie in with that at all? Or is it one that you've sort of already dealt with no, before going off no, on No, it's time management. It, it's, it's time management and, and knowing how much you as a person can physically achieve. Um, and, yeah, you, you have to prioritise. Um, so, okay, let, let's let's do last Saturday. So last Saturday, uh, I finished my notes for the game Friday night at 11 o'clock. I know I've got to leave the house at 7.30 on Saturday morning to get to Cardiff in time because you've got to be there a minimum three hours before a game starts. So uh, by 11 o'clock, I've got to get to bed, get up in the morning at 6.30, say hello to my children, um, make sure that they're happy and settled before I leave the house get in the car, I've got three hours in a car, so how can I use three hours in a car? I can listen to a lot of podcasts and I listen to them all at one and a half or two speed. That's my biggest uh, recommendation for everyone. Don't listen to this at one speed, get it going. The only podcast you can't listen to at one and a half or two speed are Irish podcasts because they speak too fast. <laughs> so if you listen to anyone from Ireland doing a podcast, you have to listen to that at real speed. You've got no choice. Okay. Everyone um, else sounds like Pinky and Perky. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and then get to the ground. Then once you've touched base uh, with it, with the broadcast team, I have to do some work for Five Live. I have to plug in some equipment for reporter that I was lending it to. I have to do an update on Five Live. Um, and then uh, I've got to go and get Sarah Hunter from the broadcast so I can take her up. And I have to act as her bouncer a bit, actually, because she's so um, famous now. I have to make sure I get her in and out of the commentary without having to do 7,000 selfies. So I have to like take her around the back and get her in. Um, and then you have to do, oh, I had to do some recording, some links. So here's the thing. When you do um, a commentary, uh, a lot of the time you do something called world feed commentary, which basically means you're not just broadcasting, say on the BBC, you have to do the whole world at the same time. But that feed starts at a different time to the BBC feed. So you have to go in early and record the introduction for that, um, that they can play out at the same time. So th th as I said, there's too much to do on a day for me to be mucking around with social media. Out exactly and going oh look at me here today i just don't have time for it i've got too many other balls in the air to juggle let alone finish then get home again so yeah too much uh, you just mentioned two children um how did that how 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 does that juggle into the to the job and i seem to recall you doing tv when you were fairly well gone down the down pregnancy the down the pregnancy route how how's it been the experience being a, a sports reporter who's going to be away quite a bit of the weekend um with being a mother of two and and also the way you know sort of that that initial having to tell your boss 
when you first were pregnant and 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 work through that with the maternity leave um i had no problems at all with telling my boss i was pregnant at all um and if you do have a problem with that you're probably in the wrong job um uh would be the the thing i'd recommend to any parent uh, it doesn't have to be a man or a woman because obviously we get shared parental leave now which i really hope is a really big discussion for all men in their lives as well um so yeah i had no problem with that um i i really enjoyed actually what are called keeping in touch days when i'd had uh, my son where i actually got to go and do a bit of work because uh, you know e every person's um experience with children is very different it's so individual for me personally i didn't really enjoy the first four months of either of my children that's not to say that i had um uh, postnatal depression or anything i just was like this is really boring <laughs> Um, that's just me personally okay um, everyone feels differently about having children uh, there was love there but I was just like I need to use my brain um, I can remember with my daughter and I was at breastfeeding in the night um, I learned I tried to play Fortnite first of all because I was like I need to know about this because this is what the kids are doing these days I did not understand Fortnite at all I was just running around and Doing did not understand do. what my motivation was exactly uh, so I ended up I taught myself poker so that was okay. my way of cheating my brain. Never for money, never for money. But I was like, I've got to do something. Um, but yeah, I mean, just as I said, it, it's such an individual thing. And I took nine months off with both of them. I always enjoyed the second half of the maternity leave so much more than the first bit. Well, they're um, just a bit more lively, just, aren't they? I think that's the issue. Well, I, think, I think it's control. Honestly, yeah. for me, I think it was control of when you have a newborn, they are in control. There is nothing you can do. You dance to their tune. Um, you know, they want to be up in the night, you're up in the night. Um, and I think until they're a bit bigger and you're a bit more confident as a parent about who they are as a baby and a child, um, that doesn't come till a bit later. So, But I, w I was ready to go back after nine months with both of them. But again, that, that's individual, totally. Um, and... Yeah, it is a juggle. It's hard. Uh, COVID was a dream as a parent. I loved COVID. I didn't have to worry about birthday parties. I didn't have to worry about who was looking after my children because I was working. There was no spreadsheet. There was no logistics. It was amazing. Um, and some people had a really tough time in COVID and I really feel for them. But for me as a parent of two young children, it, it was wonderful. And I think actually it's helped me keep going in this job the length I have right now and I've got better coping strategies because I had that break for about sort of two years we didn't really go anywhere or there was no pressure on me to go anywhere which there, made it a lot easier there weren't any uh untimely interruptions while you're on air or anything like that someone coming in suddenly wanting their mummy while you were you were chatting to someone in the studio or, or updating on, on team developments Nothing terrible, nothing terrible. I mean, I think we all, all, I'm trying to think my daughter, I mean, I probably tried to do a few things while she was napping um, and you're all there going, don't wake up, don't wake up, don't wake up. Uh, or you're watching the monitor and make sure, because you put it on quiet, but it still vibrates if they're making a noise going, oh, okay, I'll be in in a minute. Um, and you quickly wrap up a conversation far quicker than you otherwise would. Um, but look, I, I just I think it's a really important conversation to have for people with kids. And as I said, it's not just women; it's men as well. It's so important um, to say it's not just women doing childcare that are trying to juggle. It, it's men as well. And uh, I think the more we all talk about it, 
Like I have a big thing at the moment about a balance between press conferences, not just always going back to being in person all the time now. I think it's really important we do hold people to account in person. Um, but I also think there is a space as well for doing stuff online still because it just opens it up to more people who might struggle to get to that one place in the world in that very moment. We're not just talking about parents, we're talking about people with disabilities, we're talking about carers and it allows them to do a job. They might be able to write you know, a brilliant newspaper article uh, about something, but because they can't physically be there in person doesn't mean they can't you know, break down that press conference or ask the right question as much as anyone else who just happens to be sat in the room. So I really hope that there continues to be some kind of balance when it comes to the use of like Zooms and Microsoft Teams um, when it comes to the broadcast and sporting world. This is the All Is Podcast by Giverock with me, Jeremy Inson, and I'm talking to BBC rugby reporter and commentator, Sarah Orchard. The bad side of, of women's journalism, being a woman in journalism, the incident at the end of 20, 2021 that Sonia McLaughlin posted about, the abuse she got online after, over the way she, she'd spoken to Owen Farrell and Eddie Jones during their interview. Uh, how does that compare to experiences with, that you've had? Um, have they been that bad or anything similar? Do you know what? I haven't had anything similar. Um, a lot of people think I have because um, when I did my first TV commentaries on the men's game for the BBC, um, the Sun newspaper decided to write up a couple of articles of which the laziest journalism in the world, where it's the same headline, it's the same picture, um, it's virtually the same story, it's just a different date, <laughs> a different match, um, where they said that I was attacked by sexist trolls online. And it was funny because when I read it, I looked at it and I went, was I? I, don't, I wasn't aware of this. Um, and basically they'd just done, you know, really poor newspaper journalism where they had trawled the internet looking for people who had said horrible things about, oh, my dog's howling listening to this woman. Why is this woman commentating? And they had chosen to ignore, you know, the 95% positive messages that I'd actually had through that day. I felt thoroughly loved um, and appreciated um, when I did both those commentaries. So I was a bit bemused by that, but it was also very healthy to understand how newspapers work. And I was like, well, whatever then. But just touching on what happened to Sonia, for me, Sonia is one of the best, like up there, you know, top one and two uh, rugby union reporters out there. She has seen it all. She knows how to ask the right questions and she never backs off away from the difficult questions. There are some people, I think that's the toughest job that anyone has on a much day is being the pitch side reporter. Anyone who thinks it's easy, you know, probably means that they only see people ask easy questions. Anyone can turn up and go, how was it for you? What went right? What went wrong? What will you work on next week? But to actually ask the proper questions and ask them in a way that, you know, someone actually answers them and then for someone to turn around and criticise probably means you're doing a brilliant job. Talking of interviews post-match, from your point of view, and possibly without naming, let's not name names uh, on the on one side, perhaps on the other, on the good <laughs> side, but okay. the um, the... Yeah, the worst person you've had to interview. Uh, what was it? What was the nature of it, or what made it so bad? But also, the best person you've had interviewed. That person uh, you can the name. Worst I think. <laughs> the worst person I ever interviewed, who will remain unnamed, was very early on in my career when I was at BBC Radio Devon, and they were a football club manager, and I was probably only a year into my job, 
and I was in the room and I'd asked I'd been in this situation before but it's always a different sort of format when you go to different press conferences and I'd asked a senior sports reporter I said so can I just check it's the press conference then I approached the manager afterwards and asked to do my one-on-one interview and they were like yeah that's what you do so the press conference finished I stood up I walked up to the desk where the manager was and I said hi I'm Sarah from BBC Radio Devon I'm here to do uh, your one-on-one um, do you want to do it here at the desk or do you just want to go into the corner of the room and he turned around and said to me well actually I'd like to do it with you sat on my lap um, of which he did it loud enough for the whole room to hear obviously it was a room full of men they all found it hilariously funny <laughs> but it's one of those things that in this day and age if somebody dared to do that to me now oh my goodness um, I look, and I think they pick that individual I don't think would ever do it now but as I said, that was awful. Um, I was probably about 22 at the time. And it's something I'm very passionate about is I, I try and make sure I look after all women who come into this industry in particular. I look after boys as well. I'm not <laughs> discriminatory in any way, but <laughs> you know, girls in particular and women, if they are put in those situations, if they don't talk about it, if they know it's not right, we can't help them. Um, so that experience that I had if that ever happened to someone else, I would know how to get it dealt with properly. Because, you know, going back the 20 odd years when it happened to me, you know, no one batted an eyelid. Um, how, did you, how, did you, inter- go on. how did you deal with that? How did you deal with it? You know, presumably you might have had to, you had to interview him again at other stages. Was it yeah, I, I just, just went just very red in the face and just had to get on with it. Yeah. You know, you know, no obviously I did you. not sit on his lap. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's it. There wasn't anyone there. You know, that, that was normal. That was uh, the uh, inevitable word banter that you had to put up with. Um, so, yeah, and it, it's also one of the things that's always had, uh, I, I say this in a very sad way, and I've talked about this before. I've always been very careful in rugby circles. If I attend like a dinner or something like that, you know, I don't really drink at them. I have a two drink rule. I have one when I arrive and I have one on my dinner and then I won't drink anymore. Because you have to have, uh, sadly, I, I, I've always felt I have to have my wits about, about me. Um, and I, I don't want someone to give me a reputation for the wrong reasons. And it's wrong that I have to think like that. It is so wrong, but I always have. And um, may, yeah, maybe one day I'll be quite happily uh, knocking them back with the best. <laughs> um, but it, it's something just for a self-preservation thing I've always done. Would um, you say it's... And yeah, just... Would you sorry to interrupt? Would you say it's a case that the I mean, it's a reflection on society as much as as sports journalism, but male sports journalists are judged differently. Um, yes, but again, that's society. That's not rugby union, and I'd be very reluctant in any way to say that this is a rugby union problem because um, there are so many things that permeate society, and as I said a lot of my experiences from when I was young would not happen now. And I don't think they would happen now. And I'd be horrified if they did. Um, and a, a lot more action would come about if that situation I had, say, with that manager happened now. Um, so, yeah. And, yeah, maybe, as you say, um, men and women are treated differently. But you also you have to earn stripes as a reporter and a commentator as well. The best interview you've ever had? The best, oh, it's really hard because I've spoken to so many good people, 
so many. Um, so good interviews. Um, we worked earlier before. I got to interview Andre Agassi once. That was so cool. I actually got to play tennis with him when his book came out. That was just amazing. Um, you get invited by a PR company to come and uh, to these book launches. And sometimes they say, do you want to do something? And it said, do you want to play tennis? And I was like, yes, of course I do. Absolutely. Who wouldn't? Absolutely. And it was hilarious. I was the only person who turned up in tennis kit. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, fine, I'll have a one-on-one with Andre Agassi. You can all wait over there. And exactly. they did. So that was brilliant. Um, and I got him to serve at me as well, which was, was singularly the scariest thing ever. He only did it at like 80% as well. He was like, I have, I'm not even really going for it. I still couldn't get anywhere near the thing, so that's fine. So that was brilliant. Um, who else have I done that's a really good interviewee? Um, loads of women's rugby players. Um, I love speaking to uh, Ruby Tui. Uh, from New Zealand, just you've got so much time for people who are real and authentic and aren't reading off um, any sort of like media guidelines when they talk to you. Um, and that is Ruby Tui. And that's tea, all absolutely. that you ask, actually. Exactly. Um, so she was brilliant. Um, who else was very good? We talked oh. about Sarah Hunter. What, what was she like? To, you, know, you must have done plenty yeah, of the three just, figures. Just absolutely lovely absolutely lovely genuine woman um who uh, i think i said a lot in the build up to her retirement you know if, if you cut her open she would bleed england there'd be nothing else that ca came out but almost as I, i've said a few times almost her detriment at times um in that she she would protect the brand and herself and her team until the end of time and beyond um which you, you worry about long term what kind of effect that has on someone, but that doesn't take away anything from her being such a wonderful person. So yeah, you know, you get to speak to some brilliant people, all inspirational, incredible people. There's a good few women really flying the flag in rugby union, men's and women, Sarah Elgin, another one, Jill Douglas, Gabby Logan, Lauren Jenkins on uh, in Wales. Uh, when you look along the press box now and far more female faces there, what's that sort of do for you uh, and in terms of the choices you've made pursuing this career and 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 just the sort of the respect female journalists are getting female journalists and broadcasters look it's great and all of the women you have named there they are all broadcasters and i think that's actually something that's quite important to say here is that i feel there are a lot more women in the broadcast world but i still don't think there's anyone near enough in the print world in particular um like fiona thomas who writes for the telegraph now um, she predominantly works in women's rugby. She does a bit of men's rugby now, and hopefully there'll be more of it. Sarah Mockford for years, she was the editor of Rugby World, has now gone to the Telegraph to lead their women's sports section. Um, uh, th th there's a few out there. Imogen Ainsworth is starting to break through now. Um, but there's just not enough. Um, so you might say, oh, we can, we can name people now, which we can. But for me, there's there's still a huge disparity there. And it's not just when it comes to gender as well. There's also not much of a racial diversity either um, that I'm very aware of in rugby union. Um, and yeah, there's so much more we can do um, to improve rugby. And ultimately, but by improving the journalistic diversity, you are going to ultimately improve the diversity of the fan that is attracted to the sport. That's ultimately what it's all down to. So um, yeah, it's 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 heading in the right direction but uh, i still do feel progress is slow there's a lot to get excited about we've mentioned the wxv is that the correct way of saying it? it's not the w15 wxv yeah okay it's like 3x3 basketball isn't it it's now yes. three on three three x3 okay think WXV. of it as a postcode 
Uh, that starts this November. There's three tiers of competition, isn't it? Uh, it's interesting. It's the women's. The men have been talking about this for a long time, and yeah, it's the women who've got their first, who've got themselves uh, organised and, and and sort of pulled into the collective. Uh, how good a competition is that to have in terms of raising levels of of the of the tour, of, of of the sport? The concept of WXV is fantastic. Um, I'm not going to say it's perfect because one, it hasn't started and two, we don't have a huge amount of information on it about how it's going to work long term. Um, The positives of of it, you've already mentioned there, it's going to be part of a women's global calendar, which uh, is now very clear for all the unions across the world about what their international windows are um, and how it works and how domestic leagues can work around it, which again, you know, the men are still a long way off getting all of that sorted, aren't they? Um, What I do have reservations about with WXV is it is ultimately encouraging a lot of nations that are still finding their feet in professionalism, semi-professionalism, or are still amateur and committing to another huge annual tournament. Now, I don't know if some of those nations are ready for it, um, that's why it is good it is a tiered competition don't get me wrong that's probably the best thing about WXV you're going to have one two and three so you're not going to have um, say the likes of oh gosh I don't want to pick out a team to make them feel bad now but let's say Spain they're not going to end up in in WXV one they're not ready to play in that um, that's what it's going to prevent but that that still doesn't mean to me that every nation is ready to go away and spend you know a month or six weeks away and be able to fund their players to be able to do that. That's my biggest concern um, with not just women's rugby. It, it's different levels, but just a general understanding still that rugby union has to be able to be viewed for, for the majority that play other than the elite men. It has to be viewed as a semi-professional career and you have to be able to do something else at the same time. And these big tournaments fitting them in when you have another career is increasingly more difficult. You know, a World Cup comes around once every four years. So you can prepare and you can plan for that. Um, And if you have a Six Nations, it might be that you say, okay, I can give you three days a week, but the other four, I have to be, you know, in my job. Um, But yeah, it's, um, those are my concerns, but that's not to say I can't have an open mind. You know, it hasn't started yet and see how these nations actually manage it when it arrives. Uh, and where do you stand on the, on the talk of a Lions tour? Are, are um, there, is, similar is to what I've just said about WXV, um, I, I don't think women's rugby is ready for a Lions tour. You know, it's a lovely concept, don't get me wrong. Um, and there's a, a certain amount of romance attached to it. Um, but women's rugby has got a huge amount to sort out um, when it comes to like individual unions. Uh, at the moment without throwing a Lions tour. I'm not going to say never, but I just think right here, right now, um, I just think, yeah, it's another layer of complication um, that it doesn't need. Um, and not only that, I, I've, I'm s- I've such a big thing that if they do do a women's Lions tour, it looks nothing like a men's Lions tour. Um, there are different ways you can do this. Um, and the men's model, I don't think would work in women's rugby where you would go, say, over to Australia and you would play three tests and the build-up to that play, say, six games. And, yeah, I just... I can't see that working. And I could see far more exciting and different models that might work for the women's game. Uh, and one player who should keep an eye on for the next 
next few years, maybe coming up towards the, the next World Cup in 2025. Ooh, can I choose a few? Yeah, I think um, so. I, I love Neve Jones. Uh, he's playing hooker at the moment for Ireland. They're going through a really tough time, but she is just like the ultimate firecracker player. So uh, I have a lot of time for her. Um I am looking forward to the comeback of Alicia Butchers at Wales. Uh, she got injured out in the World Cup, did her ACL. Um, she will be so frustrated being on the sidelines at the moment for Wales. But yeah, I cannot wait to see her come back and play. Um, and then for England, I have to say Emma Singh. Oh, she she is going to be something. Um, she's still so young. She's actually training to be a vet um, alongside uh, playing rugby at the moment. But if you just look at the shape of her body and the length of her limbs, she is designed for kicking. She looks a bit like Emily Scarrett, perhaps at the same age, but she's got a couple of inches on her, really long levers. And um, yeah, I think she's going to do some special things on a rugby field in the build up to the next World Cup. And if you could sum up, what has rugby brought to your life? How much your life, what, could you imagine what it would be like without rugby in it? Rugby has mainly brought me friends, you know, that's the biggest thing I'd say. Yeah, it's given me a job as well, which has been a bonus, but um, I'm still in touch now with the women that I played rugby union with when I was at university. Um, They're hugely important in my life. And um, I would say it's a community that is ever embracing. It doesn't matter wherever I'm talking about my refereeing societies, the clubs that I've played for, the people I work with at the BBC. They're all good people, you know, I, I can't name anyone that I work or associate with um, that haven't, if I had a problem, that wouldn't help me out or wouldn't look after me. Um, I really like to think that rugby looks after its own um, and long may it continue that way. And finally, uh, young girls out there might be listening to this at school, university, want a career in sports journalism. What would you advise them? What I said at the beginning, get out there, get some work experience. Doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if you're writing a tourist guide for a city you've never been to, go and write it. Um, And yeah, like my pathway into it, um, when it came to actually talking out loud, you know, I did a lot of traffic and travel reports on BBC Radio Devon and Cornwall. It's not always about doing that job first. You've got to find your pathway to get there. So it's doing a lot of other things on the way to get where you want to be. Um, and sometimes you might actually find out you end up there by accident Uh, so never say no to an opportunity figure it out after you've said yes um, how you're going to fit it in Um, and yeah just go enjoy it smile learn as much as you can and um, yeah you'll make it if you want it you'll always make it fantastic Sarah thank you very much for chatting it's been great to chat and hear about your your involvement in the sport and as a journalist Um, but yeah thank you again no worries at all thank you so much Jeremy That was the All Ears podcast with me, Jeremy Inson. Thanks for listening, and remember to subscribe and follow us on all the usual social media channels. See you next time.